It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only, call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 3814567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. We welcome you to the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, October 6, 2016. Thank you for joining us on the program tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father Greg Gwynn joins me to my right, your left. Jacob, great to join you tonight. Good to join you. And uh, Kyle is behind the boards. Uh, Kyle, welcome to the program. It's uh, good to be here. Good to have you back tonight. And uh, looking forward to hearing from you at 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com or in the chat window. If you're watching us on the live feed tonight, uh, we want to welcome your comments there in the chat room. And want to let you know you can still get a bumper sticker. Still a few of those I saw in your office tonight. Yep, we got, want, we, we got them. We got them. Get them while get them while you can. Yep, uh, they're a bargain at half the price. That's right. And uh, all you need is send a snail mail address to questions at collegeview uh, dot com, and uh, those uh, can get uh, zipped over to you as fast as well. That kind of mail will zip. Uh, it'll come your way. Now but, we got a little bit of housekeeping yep. to do here, uh, reminding everybody about our upcoming gospel meeting which is just a little over two weeks away, October 6th, uh, October 23rd through the 28th, October 23rd through 28th. Uh, we're going to have different speakers. Uh, I think we've run through the list before. Jim Walsh, uh, John Gibson, Jim Michaels, David Watson, Alan Yader. And Friday night of our meeting, that would be the 28th, we're going to have, uh, instead of preaching, we're going to have a, a congregational singing. Jim Deason will lead the singing on that night. So uh, we want everybody who's within driving distance of Middle Tennessee to come join us October 23rd through the 28th here at College View. We'd love to have you on our homepage at collegeview.com. There we have the printed up flyer. Uh, uh, you can look there for the speakers and their and their topics, and we just love to have everybody come. All right. Uh, check it out at uh, thevirtualbiblestudy.com or collegeview.com. And if you're within, uh, well, traveling distance, how's that? Maybe you don't even want to drive. Maybe you want to fly. Uh, <laughs> you want to come and uh, to visit with us. There's uh, actually a pretty good airport not too far away. Yeah, right. So just come on. All right. Uh, all right, so we got a topic tonight that I hope will be interesting for discussion. I think it will be. Uh, picked up on an article in the Daily Beast. I don't know if any of our listeners are familiar with the website, the Daily Beast. It's a, it's sort of a, a liberal opinion, semi-news site. Uh, they give just enough news to allow them to express their liberal political opinions. Uh, <clears throat> but you may have heard of the Daily Beast. On the on that website, uh, an author named Candida Moss wrote an article called "The Biggest Myths About Jesus Christ," yeah. uh, and she listed five things that she says are the biggest myths, uh, uh, things that are not true about Jesus Christ that people, I guess, that she thinks people typically believe. I thought it would just give us an opportunity, Jacob, to talk about Jesus and and talk about. Uh, who he was, what he did, and who and who we should be serving and imitating in our lives as Christians. Uh, 
There are misconceptions in the religious world. This woman has a number of misconceptions. But it's good for us from time to time to talk about Jesus and talk about his personality and talk about his character and his conduct and his teaching. And so I just thought this this article would give us a, a sort of a jumping-off place to do that. And uh, some of her misconceptions are, in fact, misconceptions, but some of her misconceptions are misconceptions about misconceptions because she's not right in yeah. assuming that it is a misconception. Yeah, I think I, I, I think if I followed you on that, I think, I think right. so. She, she confuses me a little bit with the article. Uh, but uh, anyhow, we'll look forward so, to that tonight. So earlier today, we sent out to our update list. We always remind you, get on our update list. If you're not, send us an email to questions at collegeview.com. Just say, add me to the list. We'll do that. And to our update list earlier today, we gave you the link. Uh, I don't know if we can get the link in the chat room for those who are in the chat room. I'll try to do that here in a minute. Um, But here are the five myths. She says the biggest myths about Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Number one, Jesus wasn't tall and white. Well, that's kind of weird. Number two, Jesus was not the Messiah the Jews expected. Number three, Jesus wasn't a pacifist. Number four, Jesus wasn't that concerned about family, but he was strongly opposed to divorce. Number five, historians know almost nothing about who Jesus was. You were saying before the program started, Jacob, that this woman probably mentioned the other things just for an opportunity to get to number five. She wants to suggest that Jesus wasn't really a historical figure, and we really don't know anything about him at all. And we want to really deal with that uh, uh, false claim. All right. Yeah, she... She doesn't. She wouldn't have enough material to make a whole article out of that flimsy argument that she has there at the end. So she has to put some other stuff around it, perhaps, uh, so that she has enough to make an article and then maybe give some credence to the last attack that she'd like to make against Jesus, which is ill-founded and uh, does not. Uh, she is unsupportable. But uh, we'll get to that at the end of the program. Long time ago, Jacob, I was looking in our archives. And by the way, we keep reminding you that our archives serve as a really good resource. If you're trying to study something, you may be you may be helped by getting in our uh, archives and looking because we've got lots of different uh, subjects out there and programs that were done on various subjects. Back in 09, November 12th of 09, we did a program called What Was Jesus Really Like? Okay. And that was sort of the same vein as this, but this is a little different in that this woman is is arguing that we really don't understand Jesus, we don't know what he was like, and and we and so we're going at it a little bit different. But you may uh, want to go back and access that archive. Uh, November, seven years ago, November twelfth in oh nine. Uh, if you're looking at the archive page, by the way, the best place to look is under what's called if you if you go to the virtual Bible study and the pull down tab. One of the one of the menu items there is WMA uh, archives, and the WMA stands for Windows Media Audio, and all of our archives are there. Every program we've done is archived there. Uh, we don't have all archives of video archives because we didn't do video from the from the beginning of the program. We were worried about having enough bandwidth to do audio when we started. It was, yeah. People were still on dial-up back in those days. Yeah. And uh, we don't have them all in MP3, most of them, but not all of them. But we do have them all in WMA. Yep. All right. All right. So uh, let's take this. Is, I think this is just sort of an interesting objection. And she may be somewhat accurate that people have a, a mistaken view of what Jesus looked like. Yeah. She says it is a myth that he was tall and white. Well, I, you know, the Bible never claimed he was tall and white. I, unfortunately, I think a lot of people's opinion of what Jesus looked like has been formed by 
artist renditions. And, yeah. you know, there are a lot of historic artist pictures of Jesus. Nobody knows what Jesus looked like. There are no there were no contemporary artists who did pictures of Jesus or portraits of him while he was living on earth. He was far uh, removed from anything like that. Uh, but a lot of people's opinion of his appearance has been formulated by what artists have drawn through the centuries. And of course, when they draw a, a, a character uh, that's supposed to represent Jesus, they always draw him, you know, tall and handsome, uh, long hair, a beard, uh, sort of a, a glow, a, 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 sort of a glow, probably a halo. Yeah. Uh, uh, very pale, uh, sort of feminine looking almost, you know, mo- most of those pictures. And that's way off. I think that that, I think it's just sort of interesting. What do we know about his appearance? Well, one thing we know about him, because it was prophetic, is that he wasn't a particularly handsome individual. Yeah, it is. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, uh, which speaks of the Savior, it says, He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Yeah. Pretty straightforward. He was So, you know, any picture that tries to represent yeah. him as a real, you know, uh, uh, handsome guy would be way off the mark. Yeah, I'm, I'm comparing that verse with what you, you see in these pictures, and there's an obvious contrast. In those pictures, every one of them that you see, if you saw that guy walking down the street, you'd say, there's something going on with him. There's something unusual about him. But Isaiah 53 tells us that there's absolutely nothing about Jesus' appearance that would have made you say, you know, I think we ought to pay attention to him. Yeah. In fact, uh, as you're saying, you would not pick him out of a crowd by virtue of some glow or halo or special effect look that he had. Uh, Interestingly, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 30, he was able to escape out of a a mob and they didn't even see him go now there may have been something miraculous associated with that too but the fact of the matter is he didn't look any different than anybody else living in that time and in that place well and you recall the uh religious folks in that day had to pay judas 30 pieces of silver to identify him yeah to betray him i think that's a great point you know if 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 he would if he looked like the pictures look you wouldn't have had to have anybody point him out no in fact it was nighttime <laughs> it was yeah, nighttime really well it was nighttime that glow you know they could have just gone out to the mount of olives the garden of gethsemane yeah. and followed yeah. the light yeah i think yeah. that's exactly right yeah um, he did have a beard uh, again, because of prophecy, in Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Uh, so, you know, he had he had facial hair, a beard. They plucked the, the beard of his face. Uh, but he was not a weakling. Uh, he more than likely, although we don't know particularly about his childhood, more than likely worked with Joseph in the carpentry business. Uh, we know that in Matthew chapter 4, when he had fasted for 40 days, he still had the strength to resist Satan when he was tempted. Um, he had a powerful, loud voice that could address large crowds of people. Right. You know, he didn't have a PA system, but he could speak to thousands at a time and make himself heard and known by them. Uh, of course, he was frequently traveling uh, on foot, long distances, probably spending lots of nights out under the stars, you know, in what, in, in what we would call these days primitive camping. Yeah. Uh, he was a rugged guy. 
Right. And he had enough strength to overturn the, the tables of the money changers in the temple. And we'll talk about that in a little bit uh, later in our program. But certainly, you know, you sort of get the idea of somebody who can barely walk around with some of these pictures. He had enough strength to do things like that. Yeah. Um, he probably had short hair. Not long. Every picture you ever see of him is with long hair. But we know that the Jews in the first century were strongly influenced by Greek culture. Mm-hmm. And it was the custom in that time to have short hair, not long hair. You know, Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, said it would be a shame for a man to have long hair in that custom. Uh, and I think that probably would have prevailed in, in and around uh, Judea and Galilee in the time of Christ as well because of the strong Greek influence. Uh, other times, other places, other Bible characters had long hair. but and, and we don't know about Jesus, but I think there's probably a pretty good likelihood that he would not have had long hair like the pictures show him. I imagine it's a normal um, phenomenon to project some of your cultural norms onto what you would envision Jesus to, to look like. And I don't know if there's anything necessarily wrong with that. Um, but as uh, the writer goes to say she says uh, historically speaking it's likely that the average first century male from judea would have had dark hair brown eyes and dark skin tone in addition physical anthropologists estimate that the average male from the region is likely to have been around five foot four and 136 pounds uh, so i mean that may be an accurate uh, per description the fact of the matter is we just don't know um but um certainly uh it does not appear that the artist renditions are accurate. got an email from Anthony, and he says, uh, I didn't get to read the article with a fine-tooth comb, but here are some quick knee-jerk reactions. He says, number one, totally agree with the first point. As best we can tell, Jesus would not have been light-skinned, tall, with perfectly straight and smooth hair. Quite importantly, I believe Isaiah 53, 2 tells us he had no form or comeliness and no beauty that we should desire him. Exactly right. Most man-made pictures of Jesus are designed to have the opposite effect, that is, to make us attracted to him. Yeah. That's a good point. The pictures are to make us attracted to him, and Isaiah 53, 2 says there's no comeliness that we should be attracted to him. Yeah. And that may, that may help you understand why Jesus wasn't accepted. One of the reasons, we'll talk about some others. He but just looked like he looked like, looked like your else. neighbor. Yeah, he looked like the guy across the street. Yeah. And in fact, we 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 hear that in John. Uh, uh, well, maybe I'm thinking of Luke's account. Uh, you know when? Uh, uh, no, what am I thinking of? Uh, I'm thinking of when Nathaniel. Uh, heard about Jesus coming from Galilee. Yeah, John chapter one, Philip. Uh, find, finds Nathaniel, verse 45 of John chapter 1, said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel said to him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? You know, so his reaction was, Are you kidding me? He's just a, he's just a guy from a, a, a very, uh, humble, uh, country location you you want me to believe that that's the messiah i don't think so but that was the reaction people were. Giving. that was the reaction of folks that weren't from that region yeah. when he got back to that region when he's come to his own country matthew 13 verses 54 beginning uh, he taught in their synagogue and so much that they were astonished and said whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works is this not the carpenter's son is this not is not his mother uh, called mary and his brethren james and Joses and simon and judas and his sisters are they not all with us Whence then hath this man these things? Yeah. 
So they didn't. Nothing about his upbringing or his appearance would have made you say, "There's got to be something special about this yeah, guy." Yeah. Uh, we need to go to break. Got a, Anthony emailed. He also just put a note in the t- in the chat room. He says Malcolm X purportedly suggested Jesus could have been black, and then he puts a smiley face with it. Well, I don't know what Jesus looked like, but he was not black. He was Jewish. Yeah. You know, and we know what Jewish people of of that time would have looked like. Or we have a, we have a, a good idea. Uh, and certainly he was not black skinned. That's a that, that's not a, that's not a racial statement. It's a statement of reality. He was not of a black race. He was of the Jewish race. He wouldn't have been a Caucasian race either. So yeah. it's not yeah. a. It's not he a... wasn't Chinese. He was Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. We're going to get a break. When we get back, uh, we'll take your comments. Uh, don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. These guys are doing all of the talking. We need to hear from you. Call in now. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Hello, I'm Nick Law from Jennings, Florida. I love to listen to the virtual Bible study and hear God's Word talk every Thursday night. Here's some quotes worth pondering. If you want to defend Christianity, practice it. If you find a path with no obstacles, it probably doesn't lead anywhere. Life is tragic for the person who has plenty to live on, but nothing to live for. Many people know all of their rights, but few comprehend their obligations. The bread of life never becomes stale. Live each day so that you will neither be afraid of tomorrow, nor ashamed of yesterday. Man, wish I'd said that. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Colossians 3.17. Now, back to the program. We're back on the program as we talk about an article that uh, says it wants to clarify some misconceptions about Jesus. And, uh, well, it does a good job on the first one we've talked about, but uh, let's talk about some others. All right. Second misconception, biggest myths about Jesus, number two. Jesus was not the Messiah the Jews expected. I'd actually be inclined to agree with that, mostly. Uh, The Jews were anticipating a Messiah who would come and help them reestablish Israel as a, a, a great nation, a powerful player on the political stage of the world of that day. They were looking for a physical king, a kingdom that was of this earth, and Jesus was not that. Now, uh, in, in particular, the Jewish leadership hated Jesus and despised him. He certainly wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. But but even the disciples of Jesus did not really understand uh, about his spiritual kingdom, that he'd come to establish a spiritual kingdom and not a physical one. Uh, when Jesus was before Pilate in John chapter 18, uh he said, "Thine own." Pilate said, "Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done?" Jesus answered, "My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence." So Jesus did not come to establish a physical, earthly kingdom. Even after the resurrection, uh, his his. Apostles ask him in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Right. No. They, even the apostles, until until the Holy Spirit came upon them in the day of Pentecost, even they didn't understand that he was not a physical 
king, that he did not intend to establish a physical kingdom. That took a lot of getting used to. The the unbelieving Jews never accepted that. It took his disciples some while to come to understanding that. Certainly in that day, that was the case, that they were uh, looking for a, a physical king and a physical kingdom. I don't know that that's a... The biggest myth about Jesus today, though, because anyone with a cursory understanding of uh, Jesus' life and uh, and teachings of the New Testament would know uh, that that is the case, that that's what they were looking for. So I yeah. don't know why that's a myth today. Now, maybe it was a myth in the first century, but today still a myth? I don't know. Yeah, I don't think people have a misconception that says Jesus was exactly what the Jews were looking for. The fact that she says that one of the biggest myths about Jesus is that Jesus was not the Messiah that Jews expected... The implication of that is that that Jesus was the Messiah they expected. And I, I don't know. That doesn't really make sense, I guess. Uh, Anthony says, there may be some minor points to or explanations to quibble with. I don't recall details, but the general thought seems correct to me. The Jews in general were looking for a physical king. The crowds even tried to make him a king. But if I'm not mistaken, scriptures show that at least some people were looking more for a spiritual savior, though exact examples escape me at the moment. Yeah, you know, that's a good point that Anthony brings up. In John chapter 6, the people came to him in John chapter 6, verse 15, uh, when Jesus perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. When Jesus had had any notion of the fact that they, that, that, some of the people would try to make him a king. He he actually removed himself from that physical location in order to prevent that from happening. All right. So um, Jesus was not interested in that. The Many people were. But it's an interesting comment she makes here. She says, the unexpected nature of Jesus' ministry explains why Jesus didn't attract that many followers. But it also posed problems when his followers tried to explain to other people that he really was the Messiah. Is it true that Jesus didn't attract that many followers? I think that's a myth that maybe she has. Yeah. What we do know about Jesus was that he was immensely popular among the common people. Yes. The the Jewish leadership always hated him and despised him because he was cutting into their power base. Uh, His popularity was causing them to lose ground. And so that was that was the base. They were jealous. It even it even says that Pilate understood that the Jews, the Jewish leaders, had delivered Jesus out of envy. He was aware of that. He knew what the problem was. So the Jewish leadership did not like Jesus at all ever. But the common people accepted him, and he was immensely popular among the common people. And even in Jerusalem, when Jesus returned there and would eventually and would in, within a few days of, of arriving be crucified. He was welcomed into the city of Jerusalem as a conquering hero would be welcomed. Yes. They took off their coats and laid them in the way. They yeah. they cut down palm limbs and put them, strawed them in the way. And that's the way a conquering general would return home to a celebration of a yeah. victory. Jesus was immensely popular among the common people. Now the question comes up, well, why then within a few days was he crucified? Well, that was the work of the Jewish leadership, not the popular people. And the fact of the matter is, remember, you mentioned they had to get Judas to betray Jesus, and they needed him to do that, in the, it says, in the absence of the multitude. Because he was so popular, it, they were aware if they came and arrested him while he was with the people, there would be a, a mob scene. Right, right. Uh, 
And then, of course, they, they arrested him. They went through the mock trials of Jesus during the wee small hours of the night. And they had him on the cross by 9 o'clock the next morning before the common people in town even knew what had transpired. And so Jesus was very popular among the common people, not with the leadership, but with the common people. He was very popular, uh, but he was not ever, I think, the Messiah that they had anticipated. And the reason that the reason being is they had just misinterpreted Old Testament prophecy. And you know, I think it's understandable to some extent. You you need to have the filter of the fulfillment to really understand a lot of those prophecies. You yeah. can see how they would un, would look for that with uh, the physical perspective. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. All right. So, um, first two myths: one about his appearance, and the second one about the anticipation of the Jews in regards to him. Uh, I, I have a hard time believing those are the biggest myths about Jesus. But okay, but we know, we know the answers to those things. Right. Yep. We do know the answers. Guess fifty three seventy eight. Uh, I believe that might be uh, some folks from Columbia said so they're listening in on the road from Nebraska tonight. Thank you for listening. Hope your connection stays good enough for you to listen and be safe. And uh, well, it could be dangerous to listen to us while you're driving. That has <laughs> induced uh, drowsiness. Yeah. Uh, don't fall asleep. Whatever you do. All right. And Anthony said he would say that Jesus had a lot of followers. So thank you for that, Anthony. All right. Well, let's move on to number three. We won't get, probably get done with this before our mid-hour break, but let's let's take the third biggest myth about Jesus that this Candida Moss on the Daily Beast uh, has in mind. She said Jesus wasn't a pacifist. He said for all she goes on to say for all the parables about caring for sheep, orphans, and poor people, Jesus was not a pacifist. Even if he wasn't the political messiah people hoped for, he wasn't a 1960s hippie either. In fact, he explicitly says, do not think that I come to bring peace on the earth. Sure, he tells Peter to put away his sword when the temple guards come to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he announces, quote, blessed are the peacemakers during the Sermon on the Mount. But his overturning of tables in the temple during the Passover week has to be read as an act of aggression. In the Gospel of John, he actually uses a whip to drive people out of the temple. He preferred peace, but he also engaged in at least one violent act of civil protest in order to highlight the social injustice and corruption of his day. Uh, I don't know how much trouble you got with that explanation, Jacob. Um, yeah, I don't. Uh, I guess she, she has to. You'd have to um, define terms, I guess, as far as uh, Jesus wasn't out picking well, fights. He wasn't out encouraging uh, his his followers to fight but he certainly was not opposed to using force you know it's interesting she misused the one scripture that she referenced in matthew ten thirty four. exactly uh do not think i've come to bring peace to the earth there she was talking about the fact that people would be divided his and and would oppose him and his followers not that he would bring war upon earth right uh and then when he said, she quotes from the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. No, I don't think yeah. pe- that's not political peace. That's, right. that's talking about peace with God. Blessed are right. those who bring peace with God. So she misuses the text that she uses. But it, it, I think she is right. He did use force to drive the money changers from the temple. He even used a whip in one of the accounts to accomplish that purpose. I don't think he used it on the money changers themselves, but probably on the animals that mm-hmm. they were selling in right. the temple grounds. Right. Um, uh, but he did he did actually teach and encourage us to be peaceful people. Uh, uh, if you want to look at the Sermon on the Mount for proof of that, and and 
Matthew chapter 6, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 38, beginning, ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you that ye resist not evil, but whoso shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And any man, and if any man will sue you at law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not, not thou away. Uh, Jesus, Jesus does not suggest that we be violent people. Yeah. Uh, in fact, he taught us to be peaceful people, and his apostles taught us to be peaceful people. And in Romans chapter 12, the apostle Paul said, um, uh, avenge not yourself. Let's see, uh, back up, verse 17, Romans 12. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So, uh, I mean, Jesus did not teach violent aggression, and his, and his apostles did not teach that either. And uh, when he, in fact, instructed them along those lines, when he was standing in front of Pilate, at his trial, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. So I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So he, Jesus did not intend for his message and uh, the message of Christianity, the to truth be, of the gospel, to be, uh, to be promoted, promoted with, with violence. Right. Yeah. Uh, Anthony says, I think generally this is correct, that Jesus was not a pacifist. Jesus did not teach or practice absolute pacifism. He did not command soldiers to stop fighting, for example, and his apostles taught the need for capital punishment through the government. I don't know that I would call the cleansing of the temple violent, but it did show he was not a milk toast softy. And I think that's exactly right. Um, Cornelius was a soldier. When he was converted, he was not told, you've got to quit soldiering. Mm-hmm. Uh when when the soldiers came to John the Baptist, I'm trying to think of that text, and ask him what they should do. Uh, Luke three is, there? is it Luke three? Uh, well, you got if you got that up. Kyle? Go ahead, Kyle. Yeah, Kyle. Let's see what's. Uh... It says, um, says, then the same soldiers asked him, what should we do? He says, don't extort money, don't accuse people falsely, be content with your pay. He says, be content, don't, uh, you know, lord over people. Just, you know, show them how to to be soldiers, but don't, you know. Yeah, but but it notably did not say get out of the military. Yeah, right. Uh, and, And actually, Romans chapter 13 suggests that governments should use force to uh, reward the righteous and punish the wicked. Yes. Uh, and so there's nothing really in Scripture that that would justify absolute pacifism, although it's sort of a two-edged coin because I really think that the Lord teach, wants us to be peaceful people. Yes. He does not want us to be violent, aggressive people, but he didn't te- teach absolute pacifism either. And so our author is probably correct. Jesus wasn't a pacifist. I would have to, I would have to agree with that, at least if you said he wasn't an absolute pacifist. All right. Time for a break when we get back. Now we're going to get into the more controversial uh, of the so-called myths. We, we have some disagreements with some of her points here uh, so far, but the next two are yeah. going to be the when real we get back, sticking points. When we get back, Jesus wasn't that concerned about family, but he was strongly opposed to divorce, number four. And True number, or false? Jesus wasn't that concerned about family. What do you think about that? Yeah, and then number five, 
historians know almost nothing about who Jesus was. That's the one I think we really got to jump on. All right. We're going to take a break at this week's bullet point and get your thoughts on the other side. We look forward to your comments. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back right after this. Now you can listen to a podcast of a recent sermon every week. Find out more at collegeview.com. There's more of the virtual Bible study right after these important messages. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. Peter instructs us that we must, quote, add to your faith virtue, Second Peter 1, verse 5. What is this virtue, and how do we manifest it? Thayer says that virtue is a word that could be used to describe any kind of excellence in a person or a thing. When used of a person, it might denote a quality of body or mind. But when used in the ethical sense, Thayer says it specifically means, quote, moral goodness or excellence. Another commentator suggests that it is, quote, courage, a resolute determination to do what is right steadfast strength of will to choose always the good part. How do we demonstrate this moral courage? What will be the signs that we are adding to our faith virtue? Numerous examples can be found in the Word of God. Famous heroes of the faith displayed virtue. Noah did it in the matter of living faithfully in the midst of an entirely wicked world. Abraham did when he left the comforts of home to obey God, and later when he was willing to offer his own son at God's command. Moses did when he chose, quote, rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, Hebrews 11, verse 25. However, most of us will not find ourselves in the momentous situations of a Noah, Abraham, or Moses. Instead, we will be faced with the constant challenges of our everyday lives. It is interesting that one of the most familiar uses of this terminology is found in application to a woman. In Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman is described. Hers was not the work of a soldier in battle or of a famous prophet standing up for truth and righteousness. Instead, we read of her faithfully fulfilling her role as a wife and mother. It was her God-given job, and she did it well. She was virtuous. Christian, will you courageously do what is right regardless of the consequences? Will you show moral excellence in how you talk, act, dress, and so forth? Will you take your stand always with those who are faithfully doing the will of God? It will not always be popular or easy, but when you do, you will be showing virtue. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. This is Jared in Warwickshire, England. Listen to the chat from the Virtual Bible Study each Thursday night. Broadcasting around the world with truths that are out of this world. The Virtual Bible Study. Take it away, guys. We're back on the program tonight. Reminding you this program is brought to you by the College U Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. We mentioned the website earlier, but if you've never checked it out, it is thevirtualbiblestudy.com. You're listening to this in a podcast. You've never been out there. There's lots of information you want to check out at thevirtualbiblestudy.com. And we welcome your comments at any time. Maybe you disagree with something that you've heard said on the program. Questions at collegeu.com is the way you communicate that with us. We'd love to have a discussion with you and hear your thoughts. Uh, or maybe you have a suggestion about a future topic for the Virtual Bible Study. Maybe you come across something like this article that maybe you think, oh, I'd like to hear those guys talk about that. I'd like to hear, get other folks' input on that in this format. Send it in, questions at collegeview.com. Maybe you have a question. Well, and the email address is self-explanatory there. If you've got questions, it's questions at collegeview.com. Uh, send it in, and we can address your comment. If it's uh, of a personal nature, just state that in your email. But if you'd like it to uh, answer it in this this forum here, send it in, questions at collegeview.com. All right, so we're going to uh, ones that are maybe a little more controversial. Number four of the five greatest myths or biggest myths about Jesus Christ, this author, and I, by the way, I did not get that link up in the chat room. Um, it's at the, the Daily Beast 
I'll put uh, it in there for you. Go ahead. And, okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll do it. Uh, the fourth of these five big myths, supposedly, is that Jesus wasn't concerned about, wasn't that concerned about family, but was strongly opposed to divorce. Let me let me read what this author says. In comparison to the prominent role that Christian leaders have played in recent cultural conversations about the family, marriage and family do not feature strongly in Jesus' teaching. On one occasion, Jesus actually identifies his followers rather than his biological relatives as his family. And on another, he instructs his uh, uh, disciples to leave their old lives behind, including their families, and follow him. The family for Jesus is the family of believers, which may or may not include all of your extended family. If family to you means two parents, 2.4 kids, and a white picket fence, that vision actually has its origins in the Victorian period. One place Jesus is truly supportive of marriage is when it comes to divorce. In fact, historians believe that his prohibition of divorce is one of the few sayings that we can confidently attribute to the man himself. When some Pharisees ask him, and by the way, she doesn't offer any proof for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when some Pharisees ask him about divorce, which was legal under Mosaic law, Jesus responds that God only allowed divorce because of the hardness of the people's hearts. It's possible to read this this one of two ways, either as a strong defense of marriage or of a defense of women who were vulnerable when husbands chose to divorce them. On either reading, Jesus was tough on divorce and thinks that if a person divorces and remarries, divorces and remarries, he or she commits adultery against their first spouse, Mark 10, verse 10. Some of that's okay. I don't have a problem. And I was thinking, and I was trying to, I was scratching my head trying to come up with a place in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John where Jesus talks a lot about family. Uh, certainly he did see his those who aligned with him spiritually. He was closer to those who aligned with him spiritually than even physical blood relatives. I, I don't disagree with that. And I think a lot of us would probably say the same thing, that we are closer to a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ than we are to some of our own blood kin who do not believe the truth. Uh, so, I mean, uh, we can actually relate to that. Uh, but but something we got to recall uh, and I, I think we, we need to throw this into the mix, is what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37. In 1 Corinthians 14, 37, Paul said, If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Yeah, right. So when we find uh, strong statements in, in the New Testament in regards to the role of husbands and wives and parents and children, when Paul writes about that, and he writes about that a good bit, Paul said, if you know what you're talking about, you have to acknowledge that what I'm saying, these are the commandments of the Lord. So although he may not have said it, or at least it may not be recorded for us in uh, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, if it's in the New Testament, it proves that that is the will of the Lord. Jesus promised he would send the Spirit in uh, John chapter 16, verse 13. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of, on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. And then he, he goes on and says that he would uh, declare... Uh, that uh, he would be telling the Spirit what to to say, and in First uh, Corinthians chapter of it's let's see First Corinthians chapter two verse thirteen, Paul says again which things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So if 
Paul's teaching things. He's getting from the from the from the Spirit. And Jesus promised to send the Spirit, and that it would guide them into all truth and the things that Jesus wanted to be taught. Therefore, the apostles were an extension of Christ. The things that they taught were Christ's teachings. So, did Jesus care about the family? Well, if the disciples taught about it, then uh, and they were getting that uh, indirectly through from Christ, then uh, certainly Jesus did care about it. But I think it's a little bit of a misnomer to say that Jesus didn't care about family. I've been remembering uh, when he's hanging on the cross in John chapter 19, verse 26. Good, good, exactly, good. He sees his mother, and he has care about a concern about her and her future care, and he tells John that uh, that she is now effectively his mother, and he expects him to care for her. Exactly. All right. Um, uh, Anthony says, here's where the article starts to get a little sketchy. Jesus and his apostles were definitely concerned about family. Passages that talk about putting spiritual family first do not, by necessity, mean that your fleshly family should just be kicked to the curb. Good point. Uh, I think that's a really good point, Anthony. Um, you know, when the Pharisees came and criticized Jesus, uh, oh, no, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. You know, he criticized them because they tried to make goofy application of the law of Moses oh, yeah. so that they didn't have to take care of their Corban. parents. Yep. Yeah. Uh, where is that? You, you find that? Uh, let's see here. Uh, yeah, it's uh, Mark seven eleven. Okay. In Mark chapter 7, verse 11, that may not be the account I'm thinking of off the top of my head, but... Uh, he said there, but you say, if a man say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say, again, yeah. but whatsoever thou mayest be profited by me, he shall be free. Yeah. Um, and, so that was that was a yeah. that was a, a illicit application of of uh, Mosaic law to to circumvent the requirement of caring for your parents, and Jesus rebuked them and condemned them for making that kind of a phony application or misapplication of yeah. Scripture. Right. So again, I think I, I, I disagree that he wasn't concerned about family. I do agree, and I'm kind of surprised that this secular author would would state it so succinctly. I do agree that he certainly was hard on divorce, uh, and, and he he set a very high bar. In fact, in Matthew chapter 19:9, probably the best known text that we reference in regards to Jesus' marriage law. Jesus said in Matthew 19:9, "Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her that is put away, doth commit adultery." Notice the reaction of his disciples. His disciples said unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is good not to marry. Their reaction, if I was going to put that in my own words, they would say, Wow, that's a hard law. Maybe it would be better not to get married. Yeah. So they understood that Jesus was setting a very high bar in regards to this divorce and remarriage thing. Now, can I read between the lines here for a little bit here? I see this as a direct uh, assault on uh, our uh, scriptural understanding of family and uh and especially like as the, you're pertains, saying what this author is yes saying. what she's saying as it as it pertains to the recent conversations about homosexual marriage knows how she starts this point in comparison to the prominent role that christian leaders have played in recent cultural conversations about the family marriage and the family uh do not feature uh, marriage and the family do not feature strongly in Jesus' teaching so she's saying you know all these religious people have been saying you know there's a traditional family here that the scriptures lay out. She said, oh, no, 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 no. That may be. You may be right and about that. And then she's willing to make such a firm statement about this idea of divorce. And I think 
maybe tongue in cheek or maybe well but maybe to say y'all are ignoring that so yeah. you can ignore this other stuff well you're too. you're not yeah so you we're going to discredit you on that but we're also going to discredit jesus because well he's talking about divorce so strongly everybody yeah. knows that's okay yeah. yeah that may be that and we don't know but uh, that would not be a surprising motive on the part of this author to say you know how you want to know how freaky far out jesus was Study what he says about divorce. And you don't even know what he said about the family because he didn't say anything about the he family. He didn't say anything, and he was crazy extreme on divorce. So we can discount him entirely. So just throw that all subject. out. Yeah. That that may be what she was trying to get at. Uh, we don't know. I don't know. Okay. Uh, so uh, we got anything in the chat room, or let's run to a last break. And then and then what I really want to pounce on is this last one. Uh, uh, she's... She says, historians know almost nothing about who Jesus was. That's a, she says, there are myths. There are great myths about Jesus. And one is that we know who he was, know all about him, when the fact of the matter is historians really don't know much about him at all. We're going to talk about that when we get back from the top of, from the break, and we'll go to the top of the hour. We want to hear your thoughts. Sign in the chat room. Send them in there, and we'll get them on the other side of the break. Don't go anywhere. We're back right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The virtual Bible study will be back right after this. I'm Dan Quillen, a member of the College U Church of Christ, with some thoughts about making plans. Have you made any definite plans for your spiritual life and for your service for God? We spend time prioritizing personal lives and setting goals in our careers, but do we think in those terms about the most important thing, our soul? Ask yourself these questions. What am I planning to do for God today? In the coming week, what good thoughts will I accomplish for Him? At this time next year, where do I want to be in my spiritual life? In five years from now, how will I have changed, improved, and grown in my work for God? Ten years from today, how will my family be? How will I have helped them grow spiritually? Twenty years down the road, how will I be doing? As I approach death, what will have been the most important things in my life? Where will I be in eternity? We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. 72% of non-Christian males ages 13 through 24 seek out pornography on a regular basis. But 41% of practicing Christians, defined as having attended a church service at least once in the last month, also seek out pornography on a regular basis. Get that now. 72% of non-Christians compared to 41% of practicing Christians. 73% of non-Christians are comfortable with their use of pornography, as opposed to only 39% of Christians. When asked whether watching porn was immoral... The vast majority felt it was not as immoral as not recycling, overeating, or wasting electricity or water. That information is via Christianity Today. The Word of God says in Matthew chapter 5, beginning verse 27, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Quit checking your email. The commercials are over, and the virtual Bible study is ready to roll. Take it away, guys. We're back on the program, and we probably ought to just stop here because everyone's going to be rewinding to listen to the statistics. And that, that is, is crazy. Unbelievable. unbelievable. That a vast majority of people who use pornography say, I'm comfortable with it, and it's not as bad as wasting electricity. Yeah. Well, <laughs> not to mention the fact that that is a waste of electricity by, def- by definition. Yeah. But uh, it, unbelievable. Um, all right. Um we're talking about myths that this Candida Moss says are prominent myths, the ten most uh, uh, biggest myths about Jesus. The last one, 
is uh, really, really out there in left field. Let me read what she says. It's pretty amazing. She says, there have been a number of best-selling and shocking books about Jesus of Nazareth that purport to tell us who Jesus actually was. And she references one, Reza Aslan's Zealot. She says, the historians writing these books purport to peel back the layers of history and deliver a biography of the real Jesus. These are entertaining, iconoclastic, and sometimes well-written reads, but they, they're something of an intellectual hoax. The scholarly method used to ascertain who Jesus was likely to, who Jesus was likely to have been are utterly reductionistic and sometimes contradictory. Many of the criteria employed by these scholars work with assumptions about ancient society and Jesus' place within it. But ancient culture, like our own, is not homogenous, and thus it is often impossible to evaluate whether Jesus' words and deeds were plausible, embarrassing, commonplace, or radical. Just as you might imagine that all of the British love tea, you might imagine that all ancient Jews were obsessed with regulations about the Sabbath. But you'd be wrong in both cases. If you don't know what context in which to place Jesus, you're incapable of evaluating his place within that context. When scholars engage in this kind of work, they often end up with a handful of facts. He was born. He was baptized. He performed healings. He was crucified. From which they build their portrait of Jesus. But from this collection of historical scraps, you could come to any number of conclusions about what Jesus was like. The end result is, as Barnard professor Elizabeth Castelli has eloquently shown, the portraits of Jesus end up being cultural reproductions of their own day. It's easy to criticize the selectivity of religious characterizations of Jesus, but it's worth acknowledging that historians have their own kind of bias. Finally, as William Arnall has said in his in the conclusion to his book, The Symbolic Jesus, that's the name of the book, historical portraits of Jesus don't matter. Notice this. Now, this is really crazy. Historical portraits of Jesus don't matter. And he's actually saying what Jesus was really like doesn't matter. Notice this quote. Because, quote, the Jesus who is important to our own day is not the Jesus of history, but the symbolic Jesus of contemporary discourse. It's what people say about Jesus in our own time that actually ends up mattering. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that that's the most outrageous thing in this article. That it is just make up Jesus in whatever what way really you want. What really matters is how we view him. Yeah. And how we and and therefore what influence he has based upon how we view him. Yeah. That's just outrageous. All right, now let's maybe we can work our way down to that. But we have to start out with the the, the question about that people have no idea what Jesus is really about. We and, and that, she used the expression we have a few scraps. Uh, we have a handful of facts uh, from this collection of historical scraps. You could come up with any number of conclusions about what Jesus was like. How about? How about we have the scriptures, the we, most we documented have a whole book, book about of antiquity? Him. Yeah. I mean, you're going to say that that's just scraps? Well, you, are you throwing out anything you know about other historical figures? I, I want to stress what you said. This is the most documented uh, book of antiquity. There's more, there's more evidence that this book has been preserved accurately since its inception than any other book of history that's ever been written. Right. And the people who wrote it are historians. She says historians don't know anything about Jesus. Who's she talking about? Well, she's talking about she's she's talking about secular historians who reject the Bible. But the the men who wrote this book were themselves historians. Yeah. Uh, you know, Luke starts out the the, the book of Acts uh, by actually saying that he's writing history. Uh, 
Notice he says in Acts chapter 1, the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all... He's talking about the Gospel of Luke. He says, this former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Uh, John uh, Luke says, I'm setting out to put in order. I'm, I'm setting out to write... I, I set out to write a history of what Jesus did. He's a historian. He writes history. When you write down what happened, that's history, and that makes yep. you a historian. Yeah, <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> but we just have a handful of facts, this uh, author says, about Jesus. Not very much we have. Well, that's not the case. we got a whole book about Jesus and his teachings, yep. and uh, uh, we, know, we know a tremendous amount about him. Do we know everything about him? Even the Apostle John admitted we don't, he, that not all the information of his life is here. Yep. In John chapter 20, verse 30, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So John says, you know, uh, uh, what we wrote down here was for the purpose of conveying facts that will help you to believe in Jesus, to tell the history. Now, I do see one valuable point from this uh, thought that she's presented, though. She says, just as you might imagine that all British love tea, you might imagine that all ancient Jews were obsessed with regulations about the Sabbath, but you'd be wrong in both cases. If you don't know what context in which to place Jesus, you're incapable of evaluating his place within that context. I think one danger we have is that we do try to put a contextual spin on everything we read in the scripture, or especially or a if contemporary it's a, spin, or or, a, or we we try to, or we find something in the scriptures that's difficult. Mm-hmm. That, well, you got to you got to understand that in the context it was said. Oh, I see. What you, you see, see yeah, Jesus yeah, yeah, said yeah. Jesus said that divorce wasn't acceptable except for cases of uh, infidelity. Well, you just got to put that in the context. Yeah, and that's a mistake. Or, or yeah. Jesus said that, or Paul said that women needed to. Be in submission that it was. They didn't want them to usurp authority. That was put that in the context. Con- con- that doesn't con- apply today because that was the that cultural was the culture of the that was yeah. the culture of the day. Yeah, I agree with you. And that's a very dangerous road you're going down, as she as she highlights here. Yeah. Okay. John, uh, back to what John said about the history he wrote. He says there are many. This is John 21 verse 25. There are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. There's a lot of information here. John admits we don't we don't give you all the information. Couldn't even begin to write down all the information in the history of his life, but we've given you enough uh, that you can believe. Yeah. All right. Now this last idea here that. It doesn't really matter what Jesus was like. It is the Jesus of your day that matters. What about that? Yeah, let me read that again. Historical portraits of Jesus don't matter because the Jesus who is important in our own day is not the Jesus of history, but the symbolic Jesus of contemporary discourse. It is what people say about Jesus in our time that actually ends up mattering. That that opens the floodgates to whatever you want. Because how would I know, if I don't take the Bible literally and believe the actual accounts of Jesus' life and his teachings that are recorded thoroughly in Scripture, if I just make up my own Jesus, well, uh, you know, I'm going to make up a Jesus that 
approves of homosexuality. And that's what people do. I'm going to make up a Jesus that's not hard on divorce. And that's what people do. Uh, you know, I'm going to make up a Jesus that doesn't think I have to go to church every Sunday. I can go, you know, fishing if I want to. He understands that. So I invented Jesus in my own mind. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. Because that Jesus, he's putting too many, it's, it's too hard to follow uh, carefully the things that he said. I'll just, I'll just invent a Jesus of my own imagination. And that's what people are doing. Yeah. Uh, they've got itching ears, and they heap up teachers uh, the, for their own lust. And uh, that is, uh, well, they've detailed it here, and they said that that's exactly okay. The scriptures give us an entirely different uh, commentary on that approach. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, uh, oh, uh, guest 5828 says that Jesus was known from the book of Genesis. Well, certainly, yeah, the excellent point. Uh, not only were... Um, do we have the the four gospels telling us about what Jesus was like? All the Old Testament tells us what he was like. We looked at uh, Isaiah earlier in our discussion, telling us about Jesus and what he was like. And so there's your reference as well, yeah. the f- and fulfilled prophecy. Excellent comment. Anthony takes a little different twist on what she said. Uh, he says, "I think the, this point, as listed in the article, is a little misleading. I don't think she's saying we know nothing of a historical Jesus." I think what she means is the people who purport to paint a picture of the secular Jesus in his life do a really bad job of it and can't back up most of the assertions they make. I don't see that she's saying we have no historical record of Jesus. Maybe so. I, that's not the way I read that. The way I read that is, you know... Uh, I think her, conc- her concluding paragraph sort of dictates the way I take the whole ar- argument here is that, well, there's no way to know, and so you just make up your own. Yeah. Uh, but he, I think I think Anthony's right, is that she's criticizing the scholars who take a handful of facts and build their own portrait of Jesus. Yeah. Uh, th- that is flawed. I mean, that's, uh, that's reading into the text rather than taking out of the text the truths that are in it. Right. Uh, instead of exo-Jesus, it's ISO Jesus, they're reading into the text what they want to be there. All right. Kyle, any thoughts? No. All right. All right. Well, okay, let's finish up here with you, you referred to her as a secular author many times. You know something about her? Did you find some biography I on did. her? I did. She's an English academic who is a professor of New Testament and early Christianity on the theo- uh, theology faculty of the University of Notre Dame. Notre Dame. She's at Notre Dame. Yeah, and she's so, an Ox- she's a graduate of Oxford and Yale universities, and uh, she's on the theology faculty at Notre Dame. Do you want to issue any warnings to those who might want to attend a university like that and study theology? Well, that, I mean, she's not the only one. The, nope. their, their whole faculty is shot through with people like her who don't believe what the Bible says. Yeah. I mean, but that's the case of all okay, uh, yeah. denominations. I figured you might want an opportunity to get on a soapbox here. So I'm just saying it's not surprising. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm not yeah, surprised. Yeah, no. But, uh, In fact, you got to admit, you'd be more surprised if you read a strict uh, statement of truth based upon biblical authority and uh, that just went down the line, book, chapter, and verse, thus saith the Lord, and then you read that the article was a, a theology professor at Notre Dame. You'd be more shocked at that than you are to, than you are shocked to find out that there's a theology professor at Notre Dame who doesn't really believe the Bible. Right? Wouldn't you? Yeah, sure would. Uh, but it's certainly a sad commentary on the state of those institutions. 
All right. Good discussion tonight. Um, are there myths about Jesus? Yes. I don't, think these, I don't think these are the five biggest ones. No, I don't. Like no, no, but there are myths yeah. about him. And uh, the only way we make sure we're not victim of those is that we study the scriptures and find out what he was all about, what he taught. Exactly. All right. Kyle, thank you for being here tonight and helping us out. It's always good to be here. Good to be with you. And, uh, Dad, thank you for your time. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you for joining us. Hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word. We have make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study his inspired Word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.